Good morning. That was great. More than I expected. It is a privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, Miriam and I have felt so uh, warmly welcomed by you, uh, both figuratively um, and uh, literally. It's almost December, right? It's like 80 degrees outside. We're not used to that. So um, it's nice. It's a privilege also to bring God's word to you this morning. Um, I'm excited about the opportunity to preach. I've got to admit, I, I, I honestly envisioned uh, my first opportunity to preach coming through, um, you know, coming when Matt like ran across some obscure or hard passage in Scripture, you know, and then he, uh, you know, kind of goes to to Mike and and he's like, Mike, you know, here, yeah, you you want to preach this? And Mike's like, I don't want to preach that. Um, and then they, you know, just like Bob goes off and both of them at the same time are like, give it to the new guy, you know, and then they high five and, and here it arrives, you know, and I'm before you preaching on some juicy passage in Song of Solomon or on Santa Claus or something like that. I mean, so I'm glad that's not the case. We've got a great passage in Mark one. And so if you turn to Mark one, that's where we're going to be this morning. These, uh, these verses here zoom into some of the first days of Jesus' ministry. They give a glimpse of who he is and what he's all about. And it would be kind of like a zooming into one of your days, say this past week. And then coming up here and putting it on display for all to see. Your heart, your emotions, your fears your anxieties, all the things that went wrong and how you reacted to them maybe, your struggles. And if we did that, and we put Jesus' side by side uh, by yours, I think this is what we would see. That you and I live lives in constant need of restoration. And Jesus came To bring restoration into your life. We pick up in our story as Jesus is leaving the synagogue. And this decent sized city of Capernaum in northern Galilee. And he had just healed a demon possessed man. And they're heading to lunch. Let's pick up in verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue. And entered the house of Simon, Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. She began to serve them. That evening, as the sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went into a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. 
And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray once more. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you so undeserving and yet so needy. And we realize that if we are to expect you, O God, to work in any real and meaningful way and transformative way in our lives this morning, it will only be that you come into this place and through the power of your Holy Spirit, use your word powerfully in our lives to transform and reveal the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all he has done for us his work on the cross. And we need the restoration that comes from that. And so would you do that for our good and your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Cornelius Plantiga, a writer, wrote a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. In it, he tells a story um, from the movie Grand Canyon, where this, uh, this man, trying to avoid a traffic jam on the interstate, uh, veers off into um, a, uh, a bad neighborhood, and then in this very dangerous neighborhood, his car breaks down. He calls for a tow truck, and uh, right about then, he, um, he is surrounded by some not very nice-looking guys, and they surround his car and start to threaten him. And right about when, he's, when he gets out of the car and they're threatening him, um, the tow truck driver, played by... Uh, um, his name, uh, Danny Glover, that's what I said. Uh, he shows up and he starts hooking up the car. And these guys, um, kind of upset at this man hooking up the car because they're, they're stealing what they were, he's, 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 uh, he's taking uh, what they, uh, he's stealing their plans. They um, start threatening him. And the tow truck driver, he pulls aside one of the, the main uh, members of this gang and he and he, uh, he says these words to them, which I think are a great picture of what we find going on in this passage. And maybe even a great example or a picture of what's going on in your life, even this morning. He says this, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude's supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than what it is here. In our text, we see Jesus stepping in into a scene where sin and sickness and disease is everywhere. It must have been um, kind of like a, a famous great architect stepping onto a scene in a beautiful European city that he had helped build after, though, it had been bombed. It may have been like a a great sculptor, famous sculptor, looking upon his statue that had been completely vandalized. See, when Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator, everything else fell apart. Everything broke. Everything else rebelled against the way that it was supposed to be. The universal flourishing on earth, it turned to universal struggle. Universal brokenness. 
And I don't know um, most of you very well yet. I've gotten the privilege to eat with and get to know some of you, uh, but I don't know most of you. I don't know your personal life. I don't know what's going on at work, what's going on in your marriage, or at school. I don't know what's going on with your children or in your private life. I don't know your hopes and dreams and desires, your thought life or your emotional stability. But I think that we all come to church this morning with deep-rooted areas in our lives that we feel that things are not the way they're supposed to be. We feel the effects of this curse and we long for the universal flourishing and eternal delight that we seem to be made for. We long for restoration. A picture at the end of this story where there's no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain or sickness. The lion is laying down with the lamb because peace and shalom now reigns. What we hope to see in this passage this morning is this. The master architect of your body and soul has come already to earth to offer present and eternal restoration to all that is broken in your life. The one who sculpted you in your mother's womb has come to offer real restoration to all that has seemed to be vandalized in your life. It's affected by the sin and the curse of Adam. We want to see three things for this type of restoration to come into your life. One is to see how we need this restoration. We need to see our need. Two is to see how Jesus brings such restoration. And three, how does that restoration change us? See how we need it, how Jesus brings it, and how that restoration changes us. So number one, let's see how we need such restoration. In this passage, it's easy to see um, people that need real restoration, right? Uh, verse 29, look at there, there with me. They left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon and Andrew. They invite James and John over for lunch as well. Peter um, was uh, either married or widowed at the time. He was living with his mother-in-law, and so they went over to her house. It had been easy, immediately easy for them to notice her need for restoration, right? She would have been up serving, but she's laid out in the back with uh, a high fever, unable to even muster up the strength to serve them. It's easy to see the need for restoration later on in the day when, when in verse 32, after dark, many began to gather outside the house. They probably had heard of the miracle done in the synagogue earlier that day and they waited till the Sabbath was over in order to not break the traditional law of, the, of man uh, to not do a miracle on, uh, or healed, be healed on the Sabbath. And they brought, it's like the whole town gathered in front of Peter's mother-in-law's home to be healed. And they, it says they were sick and, and they were demon-possessed and there were various diseases. This is a sickly group of people that needed restoration. But while the disciples in this scene were excited to see these people physically restored, oh, did they have such a trouble, such trouble seeing their own need for restoration. It's hard for them to see it. And we see this in verse 37, a glimpse of what we later see more and more in the, te- in the, in the Gospels, 
we see a glimpse of it here. See, Jesus had re- retreated to this secluded place to pray early the next morning. And the disciples go looking for him. Um, they wake up and they didn't see, they couldn't find him. And they come and find him. And in verse 37, it says that, that they said, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Well, why did they say that? You know why? It seems like they're almost challenging Jesus here. It's like they're saying, Jesus, what are you doing pulling away from uh, all the, the crowds to this desolate place? I mean, look, our ticket to fame is back in town. You're like the hottest thing on the market now. You're like, you know, you too's come to town. I mean, it, you're drawing crowds. This is great. We can ride this train. It's almost like they quoted a, you know, a famous verse that maybe Jesus didn't know. It's like, for I know the plans I have for you, Lord, declares me. Now, we have a wonderful plan for your life. See, their problem wasn't um, the disciples' problem. It wasn't that they had some kind of outward paralysis. It was their inward pride. James and John were there also, and man, they were so excited over this physical restoration that, that was going on, but, but they were so unaware of their own need their own pride as well. Even as we see a few years later walking with Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, they come up to him, Jesus. Man, here, we, we just want to ask you one thing. Can we have the top spots in heaven? <laughs> you know, I mean, can you give us the right hand and the left hand? And I know the disciples, they've done some cool things, but I mean, we, we kind of deserve the highest places. I mean, and then the other disciples, they're all mad at them. They're like, well, whoa, 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 look at what we've done. We deserve some spots as well. It's like a bunch of, you know, junior kids, or no offense. Um, it's young kids, younger kids, <laughs> arguing over the top spot. It's almost like us, right? Are we not also so slow in recognizing our need to be restored? Why, in other words, why is it so easy for us to grieve a high fever and yet, so slow to grieve our high temper. Why is it so easy for us to grieve a disease more than our ever so subtle discontentment, our jealousy? We quickly treat our infirmity. We tolerate our impatience. We lament our pain and we just live with our pride. And if you're here this morning... And you, maybe you don't know much about Christianity. Let me tell you why Christianity, it's, it's just a strange religion in, in one sense. Because one of our main responsibilities to God, and even as we come to church this morning, is not to come with all our great worth and present our great performance to God, but rather to come and present our poverty Samuel Rutherford, a pastor in the 17th century, um, he wrote this about coming to Christ. He said, poor folks must either borrow or beg the rich. And the only thing that commends sinners to Christ is extreme necessity and want. What do you feel like commends you to Christ this morning? See, in this passage, we find people flocking to Jesus because they recognize their extreme necessity, their need 
for restoration. And they're convinced only Jesus can provide that. They see that. Do we see that? If you do, it's a good thing. It means you're actually becoming a better person. C.S. Lewis so wisely said, he said, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. Isn't that an interesting quote? You're becoming better and better. You're understanding more and more your need. More and more clearly the evil that is still in you. Christianity is the only religion, I know of at least, that you, that you must admit, you must come admitting that you have nothing to offer. And so we ask, how do you come? How did you come to church this morning? How do you come to church this morning? Do you, do you feel like, you ever feel, and I feel this all the time, do you ever feel like you just lost, you've lost a sense of the evil that is still left in you? You feel like you come and you just feel like you're, you have something to offer, you have your great, great righteousness that you live this week to present to God? Or do you come aware that things in your heart and your mind, that your desires are just not the way you're supposed to be. Then my greatest problem in my life, it's not my wife, it's not my children, it's, it's not my boss, it's not them that needs most restor- restoration. It is me that needs most restoration. If we're able to admit that, even to have a glimpse or a glimmer of, of that kind of honesty in our heart, that is exactly what, commemor- what commends us to Christ this morning and presents us ready to hear of the restoration he has to offer. So let's look at that. Number two, see how Jesus brings such restoration for us who have that need. We're going to see four things, four awesome things about the way Jesus brings restoration. This one, his compassion to his power, three, his grace, and then lastly, his work. The first is compassion, the compassion of Jesus. So when Jesus entered the room with Peter there, uh, and his mother-in-law is laying helpless with a fever, I, I think Jesus knew the rabbinic laws of the time. See, the rabbinic laws of the time said that you are not supposed to go and sit on the bed of a, uh, a sick person, much less touch them. You're supposed to either sit on the floor or stand on the other side of the room. Jesus was not bound, he did not act bound out of the traditions of men, but rather out of the heart of compassion that he had, the exact love of of God. He, out of a heart of compassion, goes over and grabs her hand. And Jesus loved to do this. He just loved to touch people. I know some of you aren't touchy-feely people. You might not have liked this part. Um, but Jesus loved to touch people. At least eight times he heals by touching them. Five times it says that they, he laid hands on them. And at least two it says he grabs them or uh, embraces them. See, his heart is just so compassionate towards people. Especially did that for the unclean, as we'll see next week with a leper. I'm not even supposed to go near, even 50 paces near a leper. It's unclean. And he touched him. 
And how awesome, how comforting is this to know that for you who are able to confess the evil inside of you, that, that Jesus is not turned off by that. He's not turned off by your weaknesses that you come and present, your failures that you've experienced this week. He rather loves to draw near to the brokenhearted. Therefore, we don't have to hide those things from him. How incredible this is. I mean, if you think about it, it was those very sicknesses, that very suffering going on in their lives, the, the disease that must have been incredibly hard to live with, as some of you very well know. But it, it, was those, it was those things, that need, that actually presented them with the opportunity to come before and meet personally the Son of God, meet face-to-face God in the flesh. These no-named first-century Jews and Gentiles in Palestine, first-century Palestine, coming face-to-face with God in the flesh. And it came because of their suffering. And it's true. What a blessing health and comfort are in our lives. There's some of God's greatest gifts are health and comfort. I mean, health and, and um, yeah, and comfort and safety. But is it not our times of suffering and our times of weakness that often bring us most readily before the heart of our Savior to meet face and face the compassion of our God? That's encouraging for those of you who are going through that. Number two, not just we see the compassion of Jesus, but we see the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. Look at verse 31. Jesus came to her. He he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. This word, he took her by the hand. The word means to grasp or to take hold of, or actually it means to take possession of something. And when Jesus took possession of this lady's hand, the fever, it it just left. It just left. I mean, whatever the infection or the bacteria or the virus that was going on in this woman's body, it just just left. It's like the hand of Jesus and the curse from sin could not coexist. Isn't it like that? I mean, it's almost like you ever had two real strong magnets and you try to put them together at the wrong ends, you know? Yeah, you just can't force them together. They're just wobbling all over the place. You can't get it to connect. And this is how it was with Jesus. He just walked around and everywhere he went, it's just like he repulsed sin and the effects of the curse. When he moved into an area, it just, leprosy just left. And so it is with this fever, and so it was with demons, and so it was with diseases and sickness. It just left. I think the truth is this, the amazing truth then about this, about Jesus' power is this, that whatever Jesus, Jesus restores all that he possesses. He just can't do anything different. Jesus restores all that he possesses. It means this, your and my present and future restoration depend upon Jesus taking possession of your life. Those areas in your life of great need need to be taken possession of by Jesus. And he promises to restore with great power, great power. 
Kirsten uh, Powers is a commentator on Fox News. She's also a writer for uh, Newsweek and uh, USA Today. And some of you may have read her recent testimony in Christianity Today that was published. She was agnostic and uh, admittedly, uh, just, she just, uh, I just adamantly opposed Christianity, especially because uh, I just thought it was for the weak and the bigoted. She started attending um, Redeemer Church in New York uh, just because her boyfriend kind of, you know, smoothed her into that. And uh, I, I bet some of you have experienced that same thing. And uh, as she went, she was captivated by his preaching, the preacher's preaching. But um, she, she admitted, she said, uh, she said, man, he had said these great talks, but I, I couldn't understand why he would always ruin a perfectly good talk by throwing in this Jesus nonsense. <laughs> it wasn't long, though, before her heart started to soften more and more. And then one day, one night, actually, uh, while she was out of the country on a trip, she says she felt like she came face to face with Jesus. She writes about this experience when she came back. Uh, she says this. She said, I tried to write off the experience as a misfiring synapsis. But I couldn't shake it. When I returned to New York a few days later, I was lost. I, I suddenly felt God everywhere. And it was terrifying. More important, it was unwelcome. And she says this. It felt like an invasion. It felt like an invasion. Brothers and sisters, Jesus desires to invade our lives. And he desires to take possession of all that is not the way it is supposed to be in our lives. This is why he came. Not to just get us to come to church a Sunday morning, one day a week. Our hope in any of those areas of need then is that Jesus is really in the process of taking possession of your life in that area of weakness, of need, of failure. Do you believe this? Because I believe this. I mean, I believe that Jesus did this. But let me confess to you something. Because I believe Jesus walked up to here. I really, I really believe that's a historical fact. He walked up to this lady and the fever left. And then I also believe he healed demons. Demons fled away. I believe that. I believe he calmed storms with great power. But what's crazy to me is this. Is that in the midst of that, how easy it is for me to be so Slow in believing he still does that and can do that in my life now. You know what I mean? I mean, to actually move into my life in some of the areas of incredible selfishness, incredible pride, the thoughts that come in my mind sometimes where I desire glory and don't know where in the world they came from. God, can you, can you move in and take possession of that area? I confess, sometimes I'm slow to believe that. What hope, though, it should give us as we see the power of Jesus, what he moves into and possesses, we should have hope that it will flee. The grace of Jesus, the compassion, the power, the grace, that a newcomers, uh, UPC newcomers, desert, 
the other night, Friday night, somebody introduced themselves admitting that they were a recovering legalist. Uh, I think we all kind of chuckled and said, you know, I can relate with that. Um, if you're not sure what that is, well, you know what we, what we mean. Um, a legalist is one that tends to believe God blesses or, you know, you resonate with this, but you think God really can restore you. Um, but it's all based on how good you are. It's all based on how much you deserve, how much you deserve it, and how much you enter into the sanctuary, you know, earning such restoration. I think we all struggle with this. But I point you to the simple fact in this passage that nowhere does Jesus evaluate their lifestyle. He doesn't, um, he doesn't look at their righteousness or their church attendance. He doesn't ask about their quiet times. He didn't pull out their notebook with a checklist of merit and run down it in order to heal. It just says they all came and he healed them all. It was extravagant grace to anyone who came in need. And if you're an unbeliever, maybe new to the Christian faith, you must know that this cannot be overemphasized in our church or in our faith, in our belief system. That God has everything to give and you have everything to receive. You glorify God when you receive most from Him His grace. Not when you come trying to give Him most of you. He wants to save us for free. And He wants to restore you. And renew you and heal you and sanctify you through and through for free. Just by asking for it. But encouragement is to come readily to Him. And lastly, we see this so clearly through, lastly, the work of Jesus. The compassion, the power, the grace, and the work. In verse 38, we see an interesting part of this passage because when the disciples come and they implore him to come back and pursue the opportunity to heal many in Capernaum, gain all this popularity, Jesus gives them a most unexpected answer. When you read this, did you expect that answer? He basically was like this. I'll go back to Capernaum. And heal them. <clears throat> um, no. No. I'm not going to do that. Um, I came, he says, let us go that I might go to other towns that I might preach. That is why I came. Isn't that interesting? And to me, when I first re- read it, in studying this passage, it almost seems rude. I mean, here are these opportunities, people with real needs to be restored physically. I mean, real pain. And he could just go back and just heal them real quick. It was nothing for him to do that. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go and preach. I'm going to go use words and proclaim something. And on the surface, it's, uh, it's confusing. But underneath, it reveals something very important about the ultimate mission of Jesus that we must see this morning. See, his ultimate mission, his ultimate work was so much bigger and so much more glorious than healing a few people's lives in first century Palestine, Israel. Even these who were healed, you know, they still got sick, right? A few years later and they died. Jesus had something better. The only reason he did not go back is because there was something better he had to offer them. He said, I have to come and preach good news about his work that he would accomplish. And and let me just tell you what this work of good news is. 
It actually begins with bad news. Bad news that some of us are very familiar with. But it's simply this, that it is the reason things aren't the way they're supposed to be in our lives is because you're in my sin. It's wreaked havoc in our lives, in every aspect of our lives. We need restoration because we have sin and we deserve judgment for it. But Jesus was not like that. See, he came and he lived perfectly by faith. In every way that you and I failed, he perfectly obeyed God's law and was perfectly righteous. And here's the crazy thing, because he didn't always walk in his life repelling sin and the curse. Remember what happened there at the end of his life? At the end of his life, Jesus turns the magnet around. And everything that he repelled, he turned and he attracted it into himself. Isaiah prophesied this 700 years earlier when he said, he willingly bore our griefs and our sorrows and carried our sorrows up to a place of execution and judgment from his father. That Jesus was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for the iniquities that he took upon and willingly attracted to himself. He became sin so that through this simple faith and this proclaimed message that he went out and preached, simple faith, you and I could be restored forever to God our Father and given the promise of that ultimate restoration one day soon. One day really soon when God will make all things right. Made righteous, declared righteous now. The promise of ultimate healing later. And what happens when you really get this good news, lastly? What really happens? What should change in your life? See how restoration changes us. Notice in verse 31. Notice Peter's mother-in-law. What happened when she was restored to health? It says she rose and she began to serve them. She began to serve them. I think this mainly was to show the proof of her being really healed. But throughout the rest of Scripture, the same is true of us. It's this. It's a simple principle. That those who are restored gladly rise to serve. Those who are restored gladly rise to serve. In other words, let me ask it this way. I'm almost done. Why does God want to heal the feverish like love of money, of success, of popularity, of making better grades than your fellow students, of getting the top position at work? Why does he want to heal that feverish need and love of that? Because he wants you to rise up and use your God-given resources with more joy and more freedom in serving others around you in Jesus' name? Why does he want to heal our feverish need of comfort in living life just to make everything secure and safe? That we might rise up and risk loss of our possessions and health for the sake of others being restored. For truly, only there's only one life we have. Become restorers of others. To bring restoration to others' lives. Why does he want to feel the feverish love of a fear of man in my own life? Maybe some of yours. 
Maybe it's because he wants me to make, to make me more bold with the gospel and, and moving into your lives with more boldness to exhort, to encourage one another. And then move more boldness into my community, take the gospel to the lost world. Let me offer two practical suggestions um, for how we can rise up and serve others straight from this passage. Number one, um, if you have a desire to restore others, I encourage you to do this. Um, begin by begin being with God. If, you, if you're not feasting on your own need for restoration, if you, don't, if you hadn't tasted and seen the goodness of God in the work of Christ, if you're not seeing his compassion, his power, then, then you really have very little um, spiritual food to offer other people. Um, you, you, we naturally, we, we, um, we praise in public what you prize in private. Whatever you prize in your home, among your family, that's what you're naturally going out and praising before others. We have got to prize Jesus and his work more in private. And this is what Jesus does in verse 35. Even he needed ongoing resources from the Father in heaven. He pulled away in order to to be with his Father. And some of us need to stop striving a little and more sitting with God. Secondly, be who you are where you are. It's just really practical. This is one of my passions um, in equipping people because it's interesting. Peter's mother-in-law, rising up to serve, she didn't run out the door and start knocking on doors. She got up, she rose up, and she just served a meal. She served where she was doing what she was equipped to do. Restore where you are with what God has uniquely given you to do in your stage of life. The beginning of gospel proclamation and demonstration. Practically, children, if you're here, rise up and be agents of restoration in your home in the way that you strive to love your brothers and sisters and respect your parents. Single men, be agents of restoration in the way that you treat Single women, in the way you guard their hearts. Single women, be agents of restoration when you're around single men, in the way you dress. And guard their their eyes. Married men, may we go and be agents of restoration in our home, with our families, and strive to love and pursue our wives as Christ loved the church. And, And women, in the way that you respect and strive to really respect, and be content in the home and respect your husband. Talk about need, areas of needed restoration, right? If you're retired, don't waste this life God's given you. Rise up and, and move into the lives of others, of younger men and younger women who desperately need mentors. Serve them in Jesus' name, in your cove, in neighborhood, in your work, in the place you work out. There are people who desperately need the restoration that we've come to understand is only found in Jesus. And they're looking in everywhere else for this restoration. So I simply say this. You and I, we live lives in constant need of of, of restoration. 
Jesus has come to bring that restoration. I exhort you and I exhort myself to believe this this day. Do you see your need for it? Have you received it by grace alone, freely? If you have not, may this be the first day you do. Bring nothing to him and just accept it. Believe it. He has everything to give. If so, if you believe this, may us, may we feast on Christ as we leave this place and go out and rise up and give our lives to serve others that they also might be restored in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. God, we believe this was true, what happened in this story. But the sin inside of us keeps us from believing sometimes that you can do this in our own lives. And even knowing what it looks like, Lord, what does it look like for you to move into such areas of brokenness in our, in our lives? It won't be fully restored until you come again. But God, we believe you do act powerfully. And so I pray for the people that are here, Lord, that we would not leave with a sense of unbelief, that unbelief would flee before your power even now that you can bring real sanctification, real healing to marriages, real restoration in relationships, and real boldness as we go out to proclaim and demonstrate this good news. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.